Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for this part of your Bible that maybe many of us are not as familiar with as other parts, but we know this word is good. We know it's here for our instruction, and we pray this evening that we might heed your word, that we might listen and live in light of it to the praise of your glory. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, you might recall Albert Einstein's famous quotes on the definition of insanity. Uh, Einstein reportedly said this, it's up on a screen. Uh, He'd reportedly said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And uh, as I hear that quote, I just think, hasn't that been the book of 1 and 2 Kings? Just think about it for a moment. Over and over again, what, what have we seen? We've seen the people of God under judgment. Over and over again, we've found them persecuted, oppressed, struck by disaster. And over and over again, we found ourselves thinking, well, what did you expect? We've been in these books for a long time now. God has been clear. God had promised. God had warned Israel and Judah and his people over and over again, do not be unfaithful to me, your God. If you are, disaster will come. Judgment will come. You see, 1 and 2 Kings, it's been pure madness. The, the people, the, the kings, they keep being unfaithful, somehow thinking this time our faithfulness, our unfaithfulness will work well. This time our unfaithfulness somehow will, will end up in, 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 in these gods that we've been worshipping that aren't gods at all, saving us. And yet over and over again, it's been madness. It's been insanity. You see, as we come to chapters 16 and 17... We see unfaithfulness in action yet again, and we see the result of unfaithfulness yet again is disaster, is judgment. And this time, there's a finality to the judgment. And this is one of those parts of the Bible of what not to do. This is a what not to do part of the Bible. There's nothing good in these chapters I encourage you to read them, but if you sat down and read all of chapter 16 and all of chapter 17, you won't find anything good. There's no no glimmer of hope, no great word of assurance. It's all quite depressing. Uh, so you know, partly I apologize to bring you down a downer on a Sunday. But this is a lesson to us. And it's also a lesson to our entire world that they must listen to and heed. You see, it's madness, it is insanity to reject God and be unfaithful to God and expect anything other than disaster, than judgment. And it all kicks off with the worst of all the kings of Judah. And this is uh, point one in your handout. If you've got your handout, make sure you've got it there. Point one, unfaithfulness in action, King Ahaz of Judah. And just remember, the kingdom has been split in two. There's the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And in chapter 16, we're looking at the southern kingdom of Judah, of that line. So look with me from verse 1 of chapter 16. And make sure you've got your Bible there. There's lots of names, lots of places. Without your Bible, you're flying blind. So make sure you've got your Bible. Verse 1, chapter 16, says this. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, that's the king of Israel in the north, Ahaz, son of Jotham, became king of Judah in the south. And look at the middle of verse 2. What do we read about Ahaz? Middle of verse 2. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like his ancestor David, but walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even made his son pass through the fire. 
And as we begin in chapter 16, it's a shock. See, the last four kings of Judah, if you remember from last week, the last four kings of Judah, they haven't been that great. Uh, they, they haven't removed the idols in the land. They're not, you know, the, the best of role models. But Ahaz, this guy's horrendous. So this is next level. Don't let this pass over you. What this king was doing was sacrificing his own children through fire to, to some idol god that isn't even real. And look at what we read in verse 4 about Ahaz. Look at verse 4. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high place, on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. This is outright idolatry. This is, this is as bad as it gets, really. And at this point, as readers, as people who've been reading all of one, two, one and two kings, we're thinking, but but hold on. Wasn't, wasn't Judah in the south? Wasn't that supposed to be the good line? Wasn't that supposed to be the one where, where some of the kings were okay? And even the bad kings, they weren't as, wor- as bad as the kings of Israel, the north. This is the southern line. What's going on here? And yet as we're reading, it just gets worse. Because look at the next scene with Ahaz. And here we see how truly lost he is. Look at verse 5. From verse 5, and again, just note the names there. So there's Aram, king of Rezin. Uh, so, uh, Aram's king Rezin. He's a, he's a pagan king. And then there's uh, Israel's king Pekah, who we met last week. So imagine these two nations. And they're coming to wage war against Ahaz and Judah in the south. So two nations their armies, and they're coming to wage war against Ahaz. And in 2 Chronicles 28, we get more information about this war. Uh, We're told there that Aram and Israel, these two nations and their armies, they come and they slaughter Ahaz and Judah. Uh, So much so that 120,000 of Ahaz's soldiers fall in just one day. And 2 Chronicles, it makes it really clear that It's actually God who's handed Ahaz and the southern kingdom over to these armies of Aram and of Israel in the north. It's God who's handed them over because of their unfaithfulness. And so at this point, you expect Ahaz to to come to his senses. You'd expect him to turn back to God and ask God for help. You'd expect Ahaz to, to get out the history books and see that whenever the people of Judah or even the people of Israel, whenever they've been unfaithful and whenever they've been uh, occupied by a foreign nation looking to devour them and, and take them away, that, that they've turned to God for help and at every time God's helped them. He saved them. That's what you expect Ahaz to do. You expect him to learn from history and go, ah, I need to repent. I should lament over my sin. I should turn back to God. I should go to God and ask him for help. But what does Ahaz do? Where does he go for help? Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pilesar, king of Assyria, who's a pagan king, saying, I am your servant and your son. March up and save me from the power of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are rising up against me. And as we read that, we should see that as the saddest of days in the history of the kings, particularly for the kings in the south. You just, just notice what Ahaz says to the king of Assyria. He's a man. He's a mere mortal, the king of Assyria. And what does Ahaz say to him? He says, I'm your servant. I'm your son. Save me. 
You see, that's idolatry. It's, it's more than that. It's stupidity. It's unfaithfulness. And it's not like Ahaz, the king of Judah in the south, suddenly forgot that Yahweh is the Lord and God and suddenly forgot that, that God is actually powerful to save. It's not that he's forgot that. That's what makes this whole scene even worse because if we go to Isaiah chapter 7, God says these words to Ahaz. They're up on the screen. So imagine the two armies are coming up against Ahaz. And look at what God says. The Lord spoke to Ahaz and he said to him, Calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering stubs of firebrands, the, the fierce anger of King Rezan of Aram and King Pekah of Israel. In other words, God was saying to, to Ahaz, don't be afraid of these invading armies coming to devour you and, and take you and, and, and destroy your kingdom. God is saying to Ahaz, don't worry, I've got this. And in Isaiah 7, if you have a chance to read it, God goes on to say to, to, to Ahaz, Stand firm in your faith. Trust me. He even says to Ahaz, Ahaz, ask me for a sign and I'll give you a sign so that you can have complete assurance that I've got this, that you can trust me, that I will save you. See, he had a promise of God to him that God would save him. And then what does Ahaz do? Where did Ahaz go when when the pressure came? He went to some mere man to some mere mortal king of Assyria, the wicked ruler of a foreign nation. You see, this is, this is a real low point for all of the kings, and particularly for those in the south. And sure, if you have a read of verse 9, look at verse 9. Verse 9, so the king of Assyria, he listened to Ahaz, and he marched up to Damascus, which is the capital of Aram, and he captured it. And so at first you read this and you think, sure, in the short term, Ahaz's unfaithfulness to God, it, it seems to pay off. He's, he's gone to some foreign king and the, and the king's helped him. But he's just actually made a deal with a greater enemy. With an enemy that, as we'll see in chapter 17, puts an end to Israel in the north. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks, does almost the same to Judah in the south. You see, the problem here is that Ahaz should have gone to God for help. And I think it raises a question for us. It makes us think about what we might do. You see, where do we go for help? Even when we're facing the consequences of our own sin or feeling the guilt of our own sin, because that's what Ahaz was facing here. The reason Aram and Israel in the north were coming against him was because he was unfaithful. It was because of his sin. He's facing the consequence of his sin. That's why he's in trouble. But even when we find ourselves in those moments, facing the consequences of our own sin, where do we go to for help? In many ways, we're not like Ahaz. We we don't turn to full-blown idolatry. Uh, We don't have time to read it now, but if you just look very briefly and skim your eyes over verses 10, 10 to 20, just have a quick look at verses 10 to 20. Run your eyes over those verses. There we read that that Ahaz lives out full-blown idolatry. Uh, It's pretty shocking. He goes into the temple of his God, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of the Lord, and he removes the right items of worship from the temple and then puts other items of worship in there that, that are designed to help you worship the pagan gods of Assyria. No king of Judah has been so outright in his idolatry so far. But the real problem with Ahaz is not his full-blown idolatry. That, that, that's just a symptom. 
Now, his problem was his refusal to go to God for help. His problem was his refusal to believe that only God is truly powerful to save and to help. And not only powerful to save and to help, but actually God was willing to help. This is the thing that makes what Ahaz does so shocking. See, God promised Ahaz, I've got this. Trust me. Follow me. Stand firm in your faith. Come to me in your time of need. And you see, that can be our problem. We can fail to believe how powerful and how willing God is to help us. We can forget that God promises us in everything, whatever it might be, that I've got this. Even more so, we can look to what God has already done for us in Jesus and see that he's got this, that he's powerful to save us. So let me ask you again, where do we turn when we need help? And where do you turn even in the sorrow and consequences of your own sin? Which again is why Judah found themselves in this problem. They were facing the consequence of their own sin. You see, in those moments, do we, do we only turn to other people to help? Do we only turn to our friends or our family or even professionals to counsel us and, and guide us? And all those things have their place rightly. But, but how often in our time of need do we first seek the Lord? See, that, that, that's what faithfulness looks like. First of all, in all things, no matter what it is, with every need, we seek and trust the Lord God, who's powerful and willing and able to help. Or when we realize the consequence of our own sin and see the trouble we've got ourselves in because of our sin, which happens at times, what do we do at that point? Do, do we stand too ashamed to come to God? Do, do we try and look to ourselves to deal with our own guilt and, and keep that from God? You see, in God's promise of forgiveness to us, do we humbly repent and lean on that promise? Like Ahaz should have done. See, Ahaz, he was wicked, he was unfaithful, and yet God still promised to help. What do we do with that promise in our time of need and unfaithfulness? You see, do we realize that God is powerful and willing to help, to forgive? to save. I love how Charles Spurgeon puts this. He's an old preacher, and uh, what he did in his day is he compared the idol worship of his day and how, uh, how committed those idolaters were, and he compares them with the Christian and how slow the Christian at times can be to seek the Lord their God for help. And he says, look, look up on the screen, he says this, he says, look at the poor idolater. They put up a piece of wood or stone and call it God, and how they use it. They want rain? Well, the idolaters assemble themselves and ask for rain in the firm but foolish hope that their God can give it. There's a battle, and their God is lifted up before them to lead them in victory. Oh, how they use their gods, though they be no gods at all. And then Spurgeon says this to the Christian. He says, but how seldom do we ask counsel at the hands of the Lord? How often do we go about our business Without asking his help, in our troubles, how constantly do we try, strive to bear our burdens instead of casting them upon the Lord? You see, Ahaz did so much that was wrong, so much that was evil and wicked. You read chapter 16, there's nothing good about Ahaz. But the heart of the issue for him was his failure to believe that only God can save. 
and then to seek that God in everything. But he would not listen. He was unfaithful. And when you get to the end of chapter 16, he dies as an unfaithful. And with chapter 17, we see what happens to those who are unfaithful. So we're up to point two now, the results of unfaithfulness. And uh, we've got to switch our minds at this point. So chapter 16, we were following uh, the, the line of Judah in the south. And now with chapter 17, we're following the line of Israel in the north. And this, this is the last time we're going to do this switch between south and north. Uh, it's the last time we're going to follow the line of Israel in the north because as uh, we saw two weeks ago when we looked at chapter 13, uh, chapter 13 was the beginning of the end for the northern kingdom of Israel. And now in chapter 17, this is the history of their end. This is the end of that kingdom forever. Uh, so make sure you follow with me. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17. We're at chapter 17 now. Verse 1, we read this. Hoshea, son of Elah, became king over Israel. In verse 3, Shalmanasseh, king of Assyria, attacked him. And Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. But the king of Assyria discovered Hoshea's conspiracy. He had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and had not paid tribute money to the king of Assyria as in previous years. Therefore, the king of Assyria arrested him and put him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land, it is the whole land of the northern kingdom of Israel. He marched up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. Then verse 6, look at verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He deported the Israelites to Assyria and settled them in Halah and by the Habor, Gozan's river, and in the cities of the Medes. And then that's the end for the northern kingdom of Israel. They don't exist anymore. And all this, it's, it's very interesting history, very interesting political history. Uh, you, you can read about Assyria, the empire of Assyria, in all sorts of uh, history books. And if you read those books, you read about what Assyria were like, and they were exactly like this. What they would do is they would invade a land, and they'd conquer that land, and they'd take the people from that land and then deport them to different lands. They'd kind of split the people up and put them in all these different lands. And then the other thing they do is then import a different people group into the land they just acquired. So what they were doing is mixing all the people out and about in different places and mixing the different nations together. And it was a really good tactic because then those nations couldn't kind of get their armies together or get their peoples together and cause an uprising. It was a very good tactic. It worked really well. But that's what we need to keep remembering with these chapters. These are real people, real kings, real places, real empires, real history. And just an example up on the screen there, there's an image there of an ancient carving of an Assyrian, of Assyrian soldiers. So they're soldiers. And if you look really closely to what's in their hand, it's a, it's a bit graphic, but if you look closely to what's in their hand at the top of the picture, that is the head's of Judean captives. So people from the south of Judea. And what they're doing is basically waving those heads around in victory. And uh, that's where Ahaz's pact with Assyria gets Judah in the south. From what we saw in chapter 16 when he made an alliance with Assyria, that's where it ends, with basically the, the people in the south being beheaded. It's horrific. But we've got to keep remembering, this is, this is real history, real events. But... Did you notice just how little is written about Israel's destruction in chapter 17? 
All you get of the historical detail is verse 5. So look at verse 5 again. This is all we get. The king of Assyria invaded the whole land, marched up to Samaria, besieged it for three years. But that's it. This is a big deal. It's a whole kingdom being eradicated, and that's all we get. And then we get the the details of their deportation in verse 6. And that's it. And that's because the Bible here is less interested in how it happened and much more interested in why it happened. And that's, uh, that's verses 7 to 23 now of chapter 17, the, the, the verses that Steph read out for us. And we can't look at them in detail. We won't have time. But as Steph read those verses out, and hopefully you were reading along in your Bibles, I hope that as she read it out, you realize that none of this is complicated. Uh, what this tells us, it's not, it's not hard to understand. Why were Israel in the north destroyed? Because they were unfaithful. And just let me show you quickly what Israel were like. So look at the end of verse 7. This is what they were like. Look at the end of verse 7. Israel worshipped other gods. And verse 8, what did they do? They lived according to the customs of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed. Verse 9, the Israelites secretly did what was not right against the Lord their God, which, as you read that, that is the height of stupidity. (laughs) You know, if God is God, if he exists, there's no secret. You can't do anything secretly behind God. He sees everything. And in verse 10, what else were they like? Look at verse 10. They set up sacred pillars and Asherah poles. Verse 11, they burned incense on all the high places. Verse 12, they served idols. Verse 16, they abandoned all the commands of the Lord their God and they made cast images for themselves. And just look at verse 17. Let's look at verse 17. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They devoted themselves not to God, but to do what was evil. And so as you read that, it's not hard to see and understand what Israel were like. They were unfaithful. And even though, if you have a look at verse 13, look at verse 13, even though the Lord warned them, God warned them when they messed up, he, he gave them a chance to turn from their evil ways after they'd messed up. But verse 14, which is a key verse, have a look at verse 14 if you're not there already. Verse 14, after God warned them and said, hey, come back, repent. Verse 14, they, Israel, would not listen. Instead, they became obstinate, that is, stubborn and stiff-necked, like their ancestors who did not believe the Lord their God. It's a confronting chapter, but it's not hard. It's not difficult to understand why Israel gets destroyed. See, what's the result of unfaithfulness? Well, it's there in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Therefore, after God had called them to repent and warned them, and over and over again, verse 18, therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and he removed them from his presence. The result is judgment. And if you look on the screen, you might have seen this before, this timeline, especially if you are doing or have done intro to the Bible, it might be very familiar to you. But uh, this is called the the coat hanger timeline for obvious reasons. But can you see what happens to the line of the northern kingdom on the right-hand side of that picture? See the big dot in the middle of the picture, right near the middle of the screen? Uh, That big dot is when the kingdom split in two. So you've got Judah on the left hand and Israel on the right. And Judah, if you look on the left, it keeps on going. Sure, there's some bad times, but it keeps going. But if you look to Israel on the right, what happens? It's no more. It ceases. It stops. 
They're removed from the presence of God. It is no more a kingdom. And that is what we must learn from these chapters. Unfaithfulness to God never pays. Never. And so I want to finish with three quick applications. But here, uh, this is where we need to be a little bit careful as we apply this. Because sometimes I think we read this and we, you know, we read about Israel and we read about Ahaz and we think, well, that's not me. I'm not like that. You know, I don't do those things. You know, I don't live out full-blown idolatry. I, I'm not tempted by some wooden idol. Uh, you know, I, I don't construct an Asherah pole in my backyard and then kind of bow down and worship to it. I don't follow some god called Baal. This, this, this isn't relevant to me. But it's really interesting when you read carefully what happens with Israel. And it's really interesting when you go back and read exactly how God warns Israel. Because he warns them, God warns them primarily about becoming like the people around them. So sure, he warns them about you know, worshipping idols, but primarily he warns them not to do what the people around them do. Because if they imitate the people around them, then that would take them away from God. So just look at verse 8 in chapter 17. Look at verse 8. What's the warning there? What was wrong in verse 8? The problem is they didn't, that they lived according to the customs of the people around them. And look at verse 15. See, what's the warning in verse 15? God said, don't imitate the lives of the people around you. And uh, in Israel's day and in Ahaz's day, the people around them, what did they do? They worshipped idols. Uh, they constructed Asherah poles and they were, and bowed down and worshipped to them. They had a pagan god called Baal. So why did Ahaz and why did Israel worship these gods? It's because the people around them did that. But that, that's not what people around us do. We don't have that sort of idolatry around us. Not in our Western world. So it's a really interesting question. What does unfaithfulness look like in our world? What does it look like for you and for me to imitate the people around us instead of imitating Jesus? And here's a, here's a scary question for us to ask ourselves. And I say scary because I ask myself this question and it scares me. Are we in danger of being unfaithful in living like the world instead of living like Jesus? Are we in danger of living and imitating our world and living for the world instead of living for Jesus? John Chapman, he wrote a great little book called A Foot in Two Worlds. If you've never read it, get it. It's great. It's thin. It's a quick read. And he writes this. It's up on the screen. He says, It is very possible to be a Christian and still adopt the attitudes of the world. We live in the same sorts of houses as everyone else. We take the same holidays. Our aspiration for ourselves and our children seem very like the pagan world around us. We view retirement as a holiday, and apart from church on Sunday, our retirement lifestyles seems no different to everyone else's. It is very easy to slip into thinking like everyone else in the world around us. And isn't that so true? See, don't we all struggle with this to some degree? I struggle, so I, I, I suspect you struggle too. And please, please don't mishear me. Don't hear me wrong. There's so much to thank God for about the things he's given us in this world. There are many blessings, many gifts from our Heavenly Father, which, which we can accept as good gifts from him and praise him and thank him for those gifts. But isn't that a great question to ask ourselves? 
Am I being unfaithful in living like the world and for the world instead of living like and for Jesus? And it's a very important question to ask yourself and for us to ask ourselves because the warning of these chapters is that unfaithfulness results in judgment, which is my next point. And I did warn that this was going to be a bit of a depressing sermon, but we we must hear this. This is God's word to us. We need to hear this. Our world needs to hear this. Rejecting God and unfaithfulness to God, it never pays. And so if you're a Christian, do not be deceived. The way of the world, in the end, it only leads to judgment. So don't imitate the world. And if you're not yet a Christian, do not be deceived because this world promises you so much. But in the end, I guarantee you, the only thing the world will deliver you is judgment. You see, part of the reason God has given us one and two kings is to stop us from living out Einstein's definition of insanity. See, we're to learn from Israel over and over again. What was Israel like? Israel thought and Israel reasoned that somehow this time, unfaithfulness to God, it'll be okay. It'll work out. I'll reject God and everything will be fine this time. But it never is. It was always disaster, always judgment. And ultimately, Israel in the north, they were removed from the presence of God. The result was final judgment for them. And that is what awaits every unfaithful human being. I know it's confronting, but that's God's word to us. To reject him, to be unfaithful to him, results in eternal judgment. But just to inject some glimmer of hope, just so I don't leave you all depressed and flat and not looking forward at all to the rest of your week, let me finish the sermon in this way. Because the kindness of God is such that unfaithfulness need not result in judgment. Uh, I love the parables that Jesus gives uh, in Luke chapter 15. Remember the three parables of the the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son? Do you remember those parables? All three of them are together. They all make the same point. And in each of those parables, there's this great rejoicing when the lost thing, the the sheep or the coin or the son, is found. They find it and, and everyone's just... Just you know, partying and rejoicing at how good it is that this lost thing has been found. And the point of those three parables is to teach us how much God rejoices when the lost, unfaithful sinner repents and turns to God, their Father and Creator. Do you realize how much God rejoices when a person comes to Him in their unfaithfulness? Do you realize that God rejoices when we approach him for forgiveness? See, the kindness of God to the unfaithful is incredible. Be it as a Christian, because we get caught sometimes in unfaithful things, we live unfaithful moments in our lives, or be it the non-Christian who comes to God for the very first time, our God is a kind of God who rejoices when anyone turns to him for help. You see, unfaithfulness need not result in judgment. That's the thing with Ahaz and Israel in these chapters. It is so sad and yet it's so avoidable because their unfaithfulness need not result in judgment. God promised that they could repent, that he would forgive them, that he would help them, but they never turned to God. And the incredible, the incredible thing 
is that Jesus, in his faithfulness to his Father on the cross, deals with our unfaithfulness. And that is the hope that drives us to live for Jesus and be like Jesus and to live the faithful lives we've been saved to live. Well, how about I'll pray now and ask God to help us live those lives. Heavenly Father, we read these chapters and in many ways we're saddened. We're saddened at the unfaithfulness of your people. We're, unsaddened, we're saddened by the unfaithfulness of those like Ahaz. Father, we pray that we would not be the unfaithful. We praise you, though, Father, that we know that unfaithfulness need not lead to judgment. And we thank you that Jesus has made the way for us to be forgiven. Please help us to be those who live faithful lives. Please help us to be those who aren't imitating the world around us and so rejecting you. And please help us always to come to you in our time of need and help because you promise to help us. And this we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.